My, people come and go so quickly here. <laughs> Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, 92.9 WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 KAKU, the voice of Maui, Hawaii. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day. Over your internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet, did I admit Workforce Rising, did I say them? Anyway, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow trying to keep up with uh, all of this breaking news that is slamming me even as we go to air. Yes, uh, your swell fellow from bradblog.com is once again trying to keep up. Uh, you know, I, I really I don't like reporting salacious news. I really don't, at least if it is not really newsworthy. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I think uh, some of that is going to be unavoidable today, Desi Doyen. Yeah, sorry with, to say. Uh, some of this amazing, uh, this amazing breaking report this afternoon from Washington Post because it is completely shaking up big time, bigly, the uh, the upcoming U.S. Senate special election in Alabama scheduled just weeks from now on December 12. So I guess it's a good day to have John Nichols of The Nation magazine <laughs> uh, on uh, on uh, on call to join us shortly. He'll be here uh, to talk about that story, no doubt, and the remarkable election results from Tuesday and what all of it now means. For Democrats and Republicans alike, I wish him luck in advance. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just a toxic volcano. It really is. So we're uh, going to cover what we can today as this as this breaks. Uh, and, uh, of course, Desi Doyen, you'll join us for a Green News report coming yes. up a little bit later as the U.S. is left all alone in the world. But there is some good news there as well. So it's good and bad news there. And uh, additionally... I don't even think you know about this because this just broke, Desi Doyen. What's that? News since your Green News report. Puerto Rico uh, has been hit by a massive power outage. Oh, no. San Juan 
completely out of power. Oh, no. Yep. What happened? Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Uh, but as, as if Tuesday's off-year election results were not bad enough news already for Republicans, we now have this. They now have this. An Alabama woman says Roy Moore, the Republican nominee for next month's U.S. Senate election, made inappropriate advances and had sexual contact with her. When she was 14, according to a detailed investigative Washington Post report on Thursday, Moore uh, was in his 30s at the time. He was serving as an assistant district attorney in Alabama. The uh, Senate GOP leader, Mitch McConnell, said if the report is uh, here is shown to be true, Moore must step aside from this upcoming U.S. Senate special election. Other GOP senators have uh, said the same, all adding, if true, to their remarks. The woman uh, in question, one of the women in question here, uh, Lee Korfman, says Moore met her several times when he was a local prosecutor in his 30s and at one point drove her to his home where he touched her over her underwear and guided her hand to touch him over his. Sorry. I know. It's just so, it's such uh, a huge this, according to I know. According to the Post, uh, they did not have sexual intercourse, however, according to the report. Uh, though she says he gave her alcohol, which then, as now, would be a crime. And uh, then, as now, it would also be a violation uh, punishable by time in jail for someone over the age of 19 initiating that kind of sexual contact in Alabama with a uh, with a minor 16 years of age or younger. This was back in the late 70s. Aside from Korfman, three other women interviewed by The Post in recent weeks said that Moore pursued them when they were between the ages of 16 and 18 and he was in his early 30s. None of the other women said that Moore forced them into any sort of relationship or sexual contact. But if these allegations are true, says uh, U.S. Senator uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he must step aside. That, according to a statement from the Majority Leader, Republican Senator Susan Collins tweeted, if there is any truth at all to these horrific allegations, Roy Moore should immediately step aside as a Senate candidate. National Republican Senatorial Committee Chair Cory Gardner said in a statement, if these allegations are found to be true, Roy Moore must drop out of the Alabama special Senate election. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona was caught in the uh, in the hallways of the uh, of the U.S. Senate by I think this was ABC News. Here was his remark. Senator, these allegations against Roy Moore, if true, does he need to step down? If there is any shred of truth to these stories, he ought to step aside. And now, is he uh, would he be fit to serve in the Senate if he's true? No, no, no. Um, if there's any shred of truth, uh, he ought to step aside immediately. So that was Jeff Flake uh, of Arizona is saying that if there's any shred of truth, he ought to step aside. Well, the problem but, with this is yeah. if there's any shred of truth, how is there going to be any way to prove well, an allegation? Well, I'll tell for you it? how. Okay. I read the report. It is long. It is detailed. There are uh, corroborations from uh, from others, contemporaneous co- corroboration from others. Uh, so... Uh, well, I'll get to some of that in the moment. I want to talk about quickly the idea that he uh, must step aside. Well, here's the deal. Ballots for this no- December 12 U.S. Senate election are already printed. 
They've already gone out uh, to overseas and military voters 45 days before the election, as per federal law. And uh, as I read Alabama law, uh, I believe it disallows a candidate to be replaced less than 76 days before the election. That was changed, apparently, from 45 days back in 2014. So he may have to stay on the ballot. I don't know if there is a mechanism to get him off of the ballot. Uh, it doesn't mean they, I guess, can't change the law in the state of Alabama, but... Um, for the record, Moore, who is now in his 70s, or he, I think he's actually 70, he denies the charges as fake news. But the Washington Post reporting on this is quite detailed. And the accounts of the the women now in their 50s uh, are verified, as I said, by others. They did not know each other. They do not know each other. So they weren't shit. They did not come forward. They were sought out by the uh, by the Washington Post, who did some pretty good shoe leather reporting on this. Um, so, you know, I think there's a reason why all of these Republican senators, they don't, they don't care for Roy Moore to begin with, but I think there's a reason why they're all saying, yeah, if true, he needs to step aside. Uh, the, the woman here, the, the 14-year-old, the then 14-year-old woman, Corman, for her part, voted for the last three Republican presidential candidates, including Donald Trump. So it's not like she's some ringer from the Democratic Party. True. Um, I mean, these are all things that that sound plausible to those of us who are still sane, however. (laughs) Well, Moore, uh, Roy Moore, in his response, told The Post that these allegations are completely false and are a desperate political attack by the National Democrat Party and the Washington Post on this campaign. In uh, a a statement issued since that report came out, uh, Moore's campaign chair, Bill Armistead, blasted the news, said Judge Roy Moore has endured the most outlandish attacks on any candidate in the modern political arena. But this story in today's Washington Post alleging sexual impropriety takes the cake. I hope it wasn't the cake uh, baked for a gay wedding, because that would be right out (laughs) if it was for Roy Moore. National liberal organizations know their, uh, this is from his statement, uh, national liberal organizations know their chosen candidate, Doug Jones, is in a death spiral. And this is their last ditch Hail Mary, Armistead said. See how he got the, got the death spiral in there, too. Mm. So well done. Uh, Moore, of course, for his own part, was twice ousted as Alabama's chief justice, uh, he had beat uh, for violating federal uh, court orders, by the way. He uh, had beat GOP establishment favorite Senator Luther Strange in a Republican primary just last month. He has campaigned on a platform of placing Christianity at the center of public life. In 2003, he was removed as state Supreme Court justice for refusing to take down a Ten Commandments monument. From the state Supreme Court building, he was reelected to the job and uh, then ousted once again in 2016 when he refused to follow the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling legalizing same-sex marriage because he believes in, you know, I don't know what he believes in. The special election uh, is next month. The Democratic candidate is former U.S. Attorney Doug Jones. The winner will uh, fill the seat vacated by now Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former U.S. Senator from Alabama seems somewhat ironic. I don't know why, but it seems somewhat ironic. Um, 
And this is all in an election where it seems to me, by the way, the Democrats had been wildly underestimating their chances, even though it's Alabama, but uh, underestimating their chances even before this past Tuesday's huge election wins for Democrats all over the country, including in areas thought to be so-called red districts. So we had we had planned to speak with uh, the nation's John Nichols uh, about his thoughts on Tuesday's blue tide election. And uh, now I suspect he he will have a thought or two on this uh, still developing and still breaking Roy Moore story. But um, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I just want to say one thing. What I've seen a little bit of the reaction from Alabama Republicans who all seem to be uh, rushing to Roy Moore's side to say that they think that (laughs) these are all false allegations. And even if they were true, then, you know, hey, it's it's usually in in the South. They would blame the girls for something like that for for tempting him. And let me just one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If this had been allegations made by teen boys. I think the reaction would be different. Made by teen boys against Roy Moore? Yes. That their reaction. Interesting. Interesting thought, Desi Doyen. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, kind of amazing. Uh, good luck to them if they wish to uh, deny this stuff. Uh, people can read the post. We'll, we'll link to the uh, original story today in the Washington Post. Uh, and you can decide for yourself. It is, as I said, lengthy and detailed. All right. Um, in in somehow related news here, as the uh, <laughs> other bad news for Republicans who now seem to frankly be in complete disarray at this point, as we had suggested, uh, would be likely another high-level congressional GOP today announces that he will not seek re-election in 2018. This was somewhat predictable based on those results coming in Tuesday, but now House Judiciary Chairman Bob Goodlatte, Republican of Virginia, announced on Tuesday morning that he will retire at the end of his term, leaving yet another Republican House seat open in the 2018 midterm elections. Goodlatte is Just the latest of several powerful Republican members of Congress to call it quits ahead of the 2018 midterms. His announcement comes two days after Democrats trounced Republicans Tuesday night in several races for state offices in Virginia, in Goodlatte's uh, home state. In a statement, Goodlatte said, with my time as chairman of the Judiciary Committee ending in December 2018, this is a natural stepping off point and an opportunity to begin a new chapter of my career and spend more time with my family. As they always say, House Mm. Science Committee Chair Lamar Smith, as I believe you reported in a recent Green News report, uh, a former uh, Judiciary Chair himself, now the chair of the Science Committee, he announced last week that he will retire at the end of 2018, one of the uh, top climate deniers in the U.S. House. So naturally, he was in charge of the Science Committee. Of course. House Financial Services Committee Chair Jeb Henserling, another powerful member, also recently announced that he will retire at the end of his term. Uh, They're just, uh, as I say, not good news for Republicans. They are scramming like the sinking ship, as they say. Oh, there you go. Several Republican members of uh, Congress have also cited the state of the Republican Party and politics at large when announcing their retirement, such as Congressman Frank Lobiondo of New Jersey, Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania, Jeff Flake, Senator of Arizona, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. 
In a speech announcing his retirement, Flake had bashed the coarseness of our leadership and the regular and casual undermining of our democratic norms and ideals. Corker has uh, let loose, of course, on Trump himself um, since announcing that Corker of Tennessee won't be seeking re-election. He called the White House an adult daycare center. He warned that the president could put the U.S. on a path to World War III. And speaking of uh, Bob Corker and that path to World War III, after months of questioning President Donald Trump's temperament and fitness for office, Corker announced yesterday that he would convene a hearing to examine the president's authority to use nuclear weapons. This is good news. The announcement of a uh, November 14 hearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which Corker chairs, amounts to a significant escalation, according to CNBC, of what has so far been a war of merely words between the powerful Republican and his uh, party's standard bearer. Corker said in a statement on Wednesday, a number of members both on and off our committees have raised questions about the authorities of the legislative and executive branches with respect to war making, the use of nuclear weapons and conducting foreign policy overall. He said this uh, this will be the first time since 1976 that the uh, that that committee or uh, or a House counterpart has looked at the authority and process for using nuclear weapons. The discussion is long overdue, he said, and we look forward to examining this critical issue long overdue. Indeed, we've been talking about this now for several weeks. Um, and how insane it is that this uh, that the president basically ignores the Constitution, can launch uh, wars anywhere he wants, including using nuclear weapons. And no one in Congress seems to do a damn thing about it. Well, maybe Corker is doing something about it now with this uh, with this announcement of this hearing next week. The announcement came uh, just a day after Trump had delivered a uh, combative speech aimed at North Korean leader Kim Jong-un while in South Korea as part of his two-week Asian tour. His insistence on engaging in brinkmanship with the nuclear-armed dictator has stunned military and foreign policy professionals who fear that the president's ego could lead the country down a path to war, says CNBC. Uh, scheduled to testify at the hearing on Tuesday, uh, the former acting undersecretary for policy at the Department of Defense under Barack Obama. Uh, also, and he is a uh, critic of Trump's approach to nuclear armed South uh, North Korea and a guy by the name of Peter Fever, former director for defense policy and arms control at the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration. He was one of nearly 50 Republican national security officials who signed a letter back in 2016 opposing Trump's candidacy for president. Uh, he uh, told the Duke University Chronicle in August of last year, quote, in a crisis, for instance, with a nuclear-armed North Korea, this was before Trump became president. In a crisis, for instance, with a nuclear-armed North Korea, Trump's temperament could be problematic and could lead to a dangerous escalation, whereas another president with better self-control might be able to manage it more safely. Huh. That sounds kind of prescient. That <laughs> sounds kind of accurate. But, of course, 
uh, he wasn't listened to last year. Uh, Fever, uh, Fever's view is one that Corker himself has expressed repeatedly, not the least of which when he called the White House an adult daycare center last month uh, in response to attacks from Trump. The uh, Corker told the Chattanooga website Nuga.com that the president has not yet been able to demonstrate the stability nor some of the competence that he needs to demonstrate in order to be successful. So we will have hearings on that, look at which both Republicans and Democrats alike have called for, um, because Donald Trump still has his finger on the nuclear button. Just a little reminder he and that he needn't consult with Congress before pressing it, at least under current law, which I hope they will rethink and do so quickly. Uh, and as a new nuclear arms expert, uh, Stephen Schwartz, told us uh, a week or so ago, nobody can stop him if he chooses to do so. His advisors can resign if they want, but uh, he has the authority and he will find someone to press that button. But uh, I guess in, let's say, lighter news, <laughs> Democrats won, uh, won very big on Tuesday. And the Republican nominee now for the U.S. Senate special election coming up just weeks from now, Roy Moore, may now be in very, very big trouble. We'll talk to John Nichols of The Nation about all of that and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Well, as you know by now, it was a huge day for Democrats on Tuesday as they won seats up and down the ballot in a whole bunch of states. They were holding off-year elections, including in Virginia, where Democrat Ralph Northam easily defeated Republican Ed Gillespie to become the next governor of Virginia. And Democrats also won the other statewide races for lieutenant governor and the attorney general's office. More surprisingly, still, Democrats picked up at least 15 seats, it appears, from Republicans in the state's House of Delegates, with First-time candidates winning against longtime establishment Republicans and, depending on how some likely recounts go in the weeks ahead, Democrats could potentially even take a majority in that House where Republicans had a huge 66 to 34 advantage before the election. I don't think anybody saw that one coming before Election Day. Also, New Jersey's wildly unpopular Republican governor, Chris Christie, was rebuked when his lieutenant governor lost her bid to replace him. Uh, she was demolished by Democrat Phil Murphy by almost uh, 14 points. But as we detailed on yesterday's broadcast, it wasn't just the big ticket races. Grassroots progressive candidates won races from city council to mayor in all sorts of cities, including many minority candidates and women, 
often in places where one might not expect an African-American or an Asian or Hispanic or Sikh or transgender candidate to win. It was a huge day for those sorts of candidates. It was, as we described yesterday, nothing short of a blue tidal wave in most of the states and municipalities that held elections on Tuesday. So what was it all about? How much of it was a rebuke of Donald Trump and Republicans? How much of it had to do with fresh progressive candidates stepping into the arena? And what does it bode for Republicans both in the short term in Congress and for the upcoming midterm elections in 2018 when the entire U.S. House of Representatives and a third of the U.S. Senate will be on the ballot? How will those results affect the upcoming U.S. Senate special election, by the way, in Alabama next month? Uh, But with today's breaking news from The Washington Post about Republican nominee Roy Moore there having had inappropriate sexual contact with teenagers when he was an assistant district attorney in his 30s and now the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, calling for Roy Moore to drop out of the race if the reports are true. Well, that race in Alabama in December against Democratic candidate Doug Jones now becomes even more of a wild card. If there is any man in the world who knows how to play such wild cards uh, and uh, can also explain what the hell happened on Tuesday, it's longtime progressive champion and journalist John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and the author of the newly published book, just out in paperback, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Oh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, it's a pleasure to be with you. I guess you're saying that because of what happened on Tuesday and what happened today regarding Roy Moore, but that's just a guess. I had uh, I had planned to talk to you uh, about those Tuesday results, and we will in a second. Uh, and I wanted to ask how they would affect, uh, affect the Alabama race. Well, <laughs> before today, uh, many seem to think that Roy Moore, the uh, far-right, racist, homophobic, anti-Muslim former chief justice of the uh, Alabama State Supreme Court, who had been kicked off the bench twice, was going to win easily in Alabama. Um, but let's go straight there. What, what do we make of this news about Roy Moore today and how that affects the race coming up in just a few weeks in Alabama? Yes, Brad. Let's go there. <laughs> I figured you'd want um, to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, who would have thought? I mean, just... In what wild imagination might you have possibly thought that a xenophobic, racist, lawless, um, you know, just brutal character by any measure to be a bad guy? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really. Um, So, you know, the weirdest thing about this very ugly revelation, which is, you know, I mean, talk about a 14-year-old and, you know, luring a child. Mm-hmm. I have a 14-year-old daughter, by the way, so uh, it strikes very close to home. Keep her, keep her out luring, of Alabama, yeah. I guess, but luring a child, not just, you know, like, down the street or something like that, which is bad enough, no no defenses, but to come, like, what is it, like 30 miles out into the country to your, ho- you know, to your house mm-hmm. more than once? I mean, the story, if it is true, and let us, you know, 
mm-hmm. be that fair. Let's be more fair than Roy Moore would be. Um, if it is true, I mean, this is really, really scary, ugly, awful stuff. The pro- and, well, I was yeah. going to say, one of the problems, however, is that the ballots, the absentee, uh, the overseas and military ballots are already out. The ballots are printed. Uh, apparently, Alabama law says he can't be taken off the ballot. Uh, because it's less than uh, 76 days, I think it is, before the election. The, uh, it seems like well, the Republicans are... they shouldn't have nominated him. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> well. there you go. They had an alternative. Uh, Luther Strange, who was a horrible guy, but at least, you know, not Roy Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's the deal. Uh, and there's a lot in play here, and we should be very conscious of all of this. First off, I'm not sure that Roy Moore will stand up. Um, I know that at this point it looks like he probably will, and he may. Uh, who knows, because there may be more things or whatever. But remember, Roy Moore has made his career by not following the rules, not accepting political logic or, or reason, and also by absolutely denying that which appears in the media. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he makes Trump look like a, you know, a cautious, responsible believer in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that Roy Moore's response to this, and again, it could change in the next hour, so I accept mm-hmm. that, that possibility, that he stays, he tries to stick it out, and that his argument is that this is all false, or he's, you know, it's a smear, or whatever. Um, if he does that... Uh, there will be a portion of his supporters that stick with him as well. And so uh, I, would be, I would just caution you. In my opinion, even without this, Roy Moore was probably the easiest Republican for a Democrat to beat in a U.S. Senate race uh-huh. this time in history in Alabama. So for a variety of reasons, if you want to flip the seat, you ought to want Roy Moore to stay, right? Yeah. And, well. and whether... Whether the charges are true or you know whatever the case is that you ought to want him to stay. It will be no question whatsoever that Alabama Republicans, if this proves to be as bad as it looks, and remember it's just evolving now, they will be desperate to get rid of him. Now he's never listened to them; he's never done what they asked. But if he does choose to stand down, then they have a you know a situation where I, I can guarantee you this will be in the courts. Right? There'll be books trying to get a delay, folks, and remember, as a uh, kind of oddly scheduled special election, there may be, I don't think there is, but I think there could be some avenue where you could get a judge to do a delay. It's possible. To delay um, to delay the election so that they can find a replacement for him? I yeah, mean, I, yeah, yeah. That seems, uh, well, we'll see. I mean, it seems like... Yeah, it's Alabama, brother. Well, um, maybe you know, so. With You're all right. due respect. Yeah. And, and they, have, they have top-to-bottom control government mm-hmm. um i'm just telling you i don't know the answer on that and i don't think anybody does because i promise you if indeed Roy Moore has to stand down and the republicans are looking at losing the seat they will go to court and you know and they will and, they'll fight it every way they can and i had wanted to ask you about this alabama race anyway because um even before what happened on tuesday it felt to me 
like Democrats were wildly underestimating their chances down there in Alabama. I think, oh, they think, oh, it's Alabama. It's a red state. We couldn't possibly win. The candidate, uh, Doug Jones, down there, who is actually, uh, you know, has a great record as really a former good prosecutor. Yeah. 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 That yeah. they seem to be underestimating that. Uh, do we have a problem? And let me use this to sort of move over to Tuesday. Do we have a problem with Democrats still underestimating the uh, their chances in these so-called red states, these so-called uh, uh, red districts and areas? One hundred percent. The problem continues. And uh, and here's a couple components that, that connect these two. Number one, I've advocated since the summer that um, when the Democrats got Doug Jones to run, this is mm-hmm. a, a remarkable former prosecutor uh, with deep roots in Alabama, very straight shooter guy. Um, he's, a, he's an exemplary candidate for this position with tremendous experience and with some unique abilities to pull together the traditional Democratic coalition mm-hmm. in Alabama. He's got ties to some of the old courthouse crowd. He's been great on civil rights. He's been great on women's rights. And so you get you can build kind of an old, new... Uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic, urban-rural coalition, if you do it right. But that costs a lot of money, and you have to go in early. Already, the Democrats blew that. They should have been in there, you know, months ago. Mm -hmm. And they should have been pouring resources into it. Because you understand, next year is not an easy year for Democrats on the Senate. It's the playout year from 2012, Mm -hmm. which was a good year for them. So they have a lot of vulnerable incumbents. If they had the chance to pick up a seat in 2017... And mm-hmm. get ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Well, they, yes, of course they should be going to the mat on the thing. No, and and it's typical of their problem. They don't they don't play the game the way the Republicans do. The Republicans look at a look at their vulnerabilities and possibilities and and jump. And, and so I think that number one a problem there. Yeah. And it's. That said, uh, there was also a lot of hand wringing from progressives. Uh, that the Democrats were not doing enough, uh, that they didn't uh, pick a progressive enough candidate in Virginia and so forth uh, for for governor. There was a lot of complaining in the weeks leading up to that election on Tuesday about the uh, uh, the, the Democratic candidate in Virginia. He won going down, you know, nine, what was it, nine yeah. points or something he won. Yep. So that's the other side of the coin here. Are progressives worrying too much about all of this? I guess this is a, a, a way of asking you what happened on Tuesday, John Nichols. It was, you know, it was expected that <laughs> Democrats would would do well in general, but man, they won all over the place. Uh, nobody saw the possibility of the Virginia House potentially flipping, and all of these minority and progressive candidates winning all over the country. So, what what happened here on Tuesday? People did worry, and that's a good thing. Okay? Mm-hmm. You're saying, oh, progressives are worrying and blah, blah, blah. Yes, people were worrying. It's a good thing to worry. That's what you do if you're smart in politics. Okay. You fret about how you make things happen. And so what did that worrying do? Number one, it caused Ralph Northam, who had won a tough primary against Tom Perrell, to um, scope off some pretty progressive positions. He was not a perfect progressive. Uh, I had frustration with him on some immigration issues and some other things. We acknowledge that up front. But um, he actually, you know, spoke out quite well on some of the Confederate statue issues and things that happened in Charlotte. So he also spoke out a pretty strong stance on environmental education, women's rights, a host of other issues. And Tom Perillo, who ran against him in the primary, 
um, quickly got on board and really aggressively campaigned for him, pulling together the whole coalition. And so what you had there was actually exactly how it's supposed to work. And you know, you have a primary, you, somebody wins, uh, somebody loses, you pull everybody together, you go for a win. That's not, that's not very complicated. It happened, and it's a right. good thing, and we shouldn't underestimate it. But here's one other component of it. Yeah. And this gets to the heart of the thing you're asking about, and it's a big, big deal. They may take the House in the House of Delegates in Virginia. That would be a great thing mm-hmm. for Democrats. It would be a real, real unimaginable leap forward and very important uh, because, you know, you're coming into an era gerrymandering, uh, redistricting, coming after the, the 2020 census. You know, you're getting a, a stake, getting ahead of the curve on some of these things. Mm-hmm. Very important. So it's a shock, right? Nobody saw it coming. Wrong. There were plenty of people who saw it. There were people who were talking about that they had recruited some incredibly good candidates. It looked like they were making progress there. And what if they fall one seat short? What if they almost made it? Mm-hmm. Then, yes, we can compliment them for the incredible leap forward. But then we can ask, why didn't you find a few more candidates in some of those rural areas? Why didn't you develop a rural strategy or at least a uh, exertion strategy, because that's where they didn't pick up seats right. uh, in some of these areas. Why didn't you take it the next step, right? And all I'm telling you is that Tuesday was an amazing day for the Democrats, but a heck of a lot of it was dumb luck. It was that people are sick of Donald Trump. He's polling horribly. The Republicans had an incoherent strategy, not just in Virginia, but in New Jersey and other places. And there was a real opening. This is a message that I would deliver probably as the highest level thing that we'll say today. When you are coming into the election after a presidential election in which a unpopular president was elected, and when that president is in a lot of trouble, you had better have a strategy to put a candidate on the ballot in every district and to find ways to get resources and support to that candidate because you have the potential in a wave election of mm-hmm. winning places you never thought you could win. And I think the Democrats now, because of what happened in 2017, will, some of that thinking will come in, mm-hmm. but you understand that the consultant class doesn't like that. The, the people who make their living off big money, mm-hmm. their big money politics, they don't like that. They like concentrated money in one race mm-hmm. or in a handful of races. Yeah. Um, and what I'm talking about is really, you know, spreading it out and, and, and welcoming a lot more people in, saying, yeah, transgender candidate, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Latina running in an overwhelmingly uh, Anglo area, yes, you're welcome. African American running in an overwhelmingly Anglo, Anglo area, yes, you're welcome. Because these people actually won. We had mm-hmm. uh, Latina winning in Topeka, Kansas. We had a uh, Liberian uh, immigrant winning in Montana. Right. And so... What we need to understand is there's possibilities here. And the final thing I'll bring up is this guy, and I'm sure you're aware of him, Lee Carter, who won uh, down in Virginia. He won a state house seat. Mm-hmm. Lee Carter is a, uh, a Marine, uh, young guy, uh, and he happens to be a rather passionate Democratic Socialist. Yep. And he got the nomination in this northern Virginia seat. And the Richmond paper has written about this. The Democratic Party basically dropped him. They, they walked away from him. They did not put passionate support behind him because they didn't want to be associated with a socialist. He kept going yeah. with support from DSA and other groups, and he won. 
he won a very he beat a uh, a much more prominent, very well funded Republican. Mm-hmm. And here's the interesting thing: when he won, he didn't have any of the talking point people standing around telling him what to say or how to do things. His young guy didn't know what to do when you win an election, and so he said, "Yeah, I'm not quite clear what to say here, so I guess maybe a song is appropriate." And he started singing "Solidarity Forever," and the crowd. <laughs> They ended up the night with the crowd of people with their hands held together singing the great song of American trade unionism. Now that's the kind of election result I like. I, I, I do too. And, and I like that there were a lot of first-time candidates. I know that uh, Bernie Sanders, our revolution group, had uh, uh, drafted a bunch of uh, young, new yep. candidates. Uh, even a, a group uh, run for something that sort of came out of... Uh, uh, the Hillary camp, they drafted a lot of new young people uh, to run for office. And uh, and I should say, by the way, uh, John Nichols, I, I think you're speaking to us from an airport uh, somewhere. I in, apologize in Boston. if that's you're okay. hearing some announcements in that's the background. Okay. That's, that's just announcements of, of additional victories on Tuesday. Oh, okay, good, good. You I can't wanted to, crack them all. I wanted can't to crack s- them all. You're not in the uh, the emergency room or something like that. No, I just want to let everybody no. to know. Okay. Um, so it was, it was great to see that. And and yet the still and we've got just a few minutes here. Uh, there's a couple yeah. of things I want to get to. There's there's still this divide. I fear uh, what I'll clumsily call here the the Hillary wing and the Bernie wing uh, of the party that reared its head. Certainly in the run up to the race, you had mentioned Tom Perello. Yeah. He was sort of a, a more progressive, a, a Bernie candidate who lost the primary against uh, uh, Ralph Northam, and then as you said, you know, campaigned with him and for him and. I saw a lot of folks, uh, a lot of sort of, I don't know, like Hillary establishment Democrats saying, yeah, look at Tom Perella. That's the way to do it. Well, I remember Bernie Sanders when he lost against Hillary Clinton. He campaigned like crazy for her, it seemed to me. Absolutely he did. And now they don't, some of them don't acknowledge that. They're like, oh, you know, the simple fact of the matter is um, there's a lot less of a problem between so-called Bernie Kratz and the establishment of the party that people think. Mm-hmm. Partially, that's Trump, and, and we have to recognize that. Trump has made a lot of issues very, very clear and, and you know, made it very, very hard to play games with it or to say, oh, I'm not sure I'll back this person. No, you can't. You know, this is an urgent time. However, the other part of this that's, that is, at least to my mind, really significant is that the one thing that the Bernie and Hillary wing of the party, I think, agree on. And uh, they may have some differences on some economic issues. They may have some differences on focus. But give Hillary Clinton and her people this credit. They really did embrace diversity. And there's no question that the, that the Bernie people were passionate about diversity. And, and although much of the media tries to spin a, a fantasy to the opposite. Yeah. And, and so what you have is a situation where um, as these candidates step forward, sometimes influenced by Trump, sometimes influenced by the frustration of the 2016 election, sometimes influenced uh, by circumstances on the ground, you saw people pulling together and saying, yes, you know, we refuse to accept a country that supposedly can't elect a woman president. That's wrong. And they said, we also refuse to accept a country that can't elect a democratic socialist, uh, that can't elect uh, a Latina in an Anglo city, or mm-hmm. elect a African American, or or a African immigrant in a in a Western predominantly white city. Mm-hmm. Um, we refuse to 
accept that. We're going to come together and make this happen. And there's an energy and excitement that goes with that, with, like, building out a ticket that looks more like America. My favorite win of Tuesday night mm-hmm. uh, was in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yes. And there's this guy, Rob Ball, was a city councilman there. He's an incredible guy. I mean, he went to... Berkeley and then London School of Economics and then Tulane Law School. You know, he, he wove himself into the community. He's running for mayor of of Hoboken. Right. And it was a tough, ugly campaign. They, his opponents called him a terrorist. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, I saw the, the, these mailers. I mean, yeah. were horrific, exactly. saying, calling him a terrorist. And he's not. He's not even Muslim. He's Sikh. He's no, a, of course he's Sikh. But of course, yeah. you realize that the funny thing about racism, um, <laughs> their inability to distinguish uh, right. between. You know, immigrant groupings and ethnic groupings is right. a little bit shaky. Yeah, just but a little. But this is the thing that was best about this guy. He, at a certain point in the campaign, he, he put out a brochure that said, I am everything that Donald Trump hates. Yeah. I'm a brown-skinned guy in a turban. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, this is, this is a new and fresh politics. This is something that is in your face in a good way. And so what we want to take away from you know, Tuesday night is that where Democrats thought outside the box, where they pushed harder, um, did more interesting things, they won. They didn't. So, where, where they didn't run scared, where a guy like right, uh, Ravi right. Bala did not run scared, did not run away from things, said, this is who I am, this is what I will do, and, and it wasn't, you know, consultant classed to death. John, uh, I've got just a one uh, a minute or so, and I want to get your thoughts on how this affects now the Republican agenda. Uh, the uh, you know they were wiped out in many of the suburbs in Virginia and elsewhere. Does this make, for example, tax reform harder to pass or uh, more of a must pass at this point for uh, for Republicans? The answer to your question is chaos. Okay, um, because there are camps in the Republican leadership, and even you know beyond that, um, who are on both sides of your question. There are folks who say, you know, look, what we're doing is incredibly unpopular. Let's not double down and pass a tax bill that's going to be even more unpopular. Right. There's another camp that's saying we're, we look so ineffectual, we look so dysfunctional. We got to pass something. Let's do the tax bill. There really is a push and pull. Now, here's the bottom line: the tax bill is never going to pass. You, you need to know that. It's right? not, not going to no, pass? No, Noam Chomsky is right about this stuff, okay? When the elites divide, yeah. right, and they're pulling in different directions, that's the one point where you can beat them. And the fact is the real estate folks don't like the things that the non-real estate folks do. There's some folks who want to do cuts across the board. There's other folks that don't want to do certain things. This is a mess of a situation. Now, they may ultimately pass a tax reform, but the stuff that's on the table right now is not going to happen. It can't. There's not a unified, elite, conservative support for it. It's divided. Mm-hmm. So, again, I'm not saying there will be no tax reform, but I'm saying that what you've seen so far cannot happen. It won't happen. So they are already in a mess of a situation. They've now gotten a extremely jarring uh, election result. And here's the bottom line, and this is a terrible situation that they are in. The answer to your question lies with Donald Trump. This is Donald Trump's party, whether right. you like it or not. They did very, very badly, but they're not going to break with him. And so the fact of the matter is that 
um, either they do nothing or they do what Trump says to do. Okay? It's as simple as that. And as a result, we are waiting for Trump to come back from his Asian trip and, you know, kind of sort this stuff out. And he's just been thrown a new level of chaos with the Alabama thing. Remember, they lose that Alabama seat. Do you understand? If they lose that Alabama seat, Susan Collins runs Washington. Mm, And she's she's the one person who's willing to say no to Donald Trump. Uh, well, you know that, that would be so. <laughs> there you go. So finally, somebody in the Republican Party is willing to say no to him. We'll see if those one uh, person, one person. There is a lot of <laughs> chaos uh, in the days ahead, and John will be calling you, uh, calling on you again to help us uh, make what sense of it can possibly be made at this point. John Nichols, uh, check out his book in time for Christmas: Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, <laughs> a field guide to the most dangerous people in america john wherever you are traveling uh i hope it is a safe trip and as ever great talking to you my friend keep up the great work we couldn't have a better day to talk thanks brother thank you brother okay quick break and desi Doyen joins us with the green news report more republican chaos we'll find out after this i'm brad friedman don't touch that dial Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. And real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media, you know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump, must be able to continue the fight for all of us. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yep, one of those days. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, one of those days when just uh, breaking news. I don't even know why I prepare the show, <laughs> follow the news the day before, in the morning. I should just wait till five minutes before showtime and find see out what's, what's erupted yeah, then. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because uh, already uh, something that you're, uh, you report in today's Green News report is already outdated. Oh, boy. With this breaking news, as we mentioned at the top of the show. So we'll have that detail uh, in a moment after our latest Green News report. It's a move that would leave the U.S. completely isolated when it comes to the question of climate change. Syria joins U.N. Paris Climate Agreement, leaving U.S. alone in climate denial. Our businesses want people to know in the global community that uh, the Trump administration doesn't speak for them. But U.S. cities, states and businesses are picking up the slack. Tuesday's election may result in a big blue wall of climate action on the U.S. West Coast. Plus, there's no good squabbling over who is responsible or who should pay. 
Each country has to contribute. The ozone hole is now the smallest on record, thanks to a global climate treaty. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The development comes as France confirms it has not invited the U.S. president to a climate summit in December. I guess the bromance between Donald Trump and French President Emmanuel Macron is fini. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the big off-year election on Tuesday wasn't just good news for Democrats. It might actually turn out to be good news for the planet. Yes, indeed. Election Day on Tuesday was a victory for a very diverse slate of pro-environment progressive candidates winning state and local offices around the country, particularly in Washington state, where Democrats won a special election, now giving them majorities in both state chambers, joining California and Oregon as states with both a Democratic governor and Democratic majorities in both houses, a big blue wall in the West that could be good news for state-level climate action. Seattle Times reports that Washington's Democratic Governor Jay Inslee now plans an ambitious climate agenda. He will now be able to do that because that agenda had been blocked by a one-seat Republican majority in the state Senate, and that's over, all the way from the Canadian border down to Mexico on the West Coast. And then there was one. At the latest round of United Nations climate talks now underway in Bonn, Germany, Syria announced it will sign on to the Paris Climate Agreement to reduce carbon emissions, leaving the United States as the only nation on the planet to reject the accord after U.S. President Donald Trump announced his intention to withdraw the United States in 2019. Further isolating Trump, France has announced it is not inviting the U.S. president to a climate summit in Paris. Paris in December. Oh, sad. But UN observers say China seems to be delighted to take over the leadership position. Of course they are. So much winning. At the same time, a coalition of U.S. governors, mayors, and CEOs are also now at the climate talks in Bonn as part of the We Are Still In coalition. Coalition member and Massachusetts State Representative Jennifer Benson, in an interview with WGBH Boston, says their goal is to show that the U.S. is making progress in spite of the administration. We can go and show the world that, yes, we are still engaged. We're still in this fight. We believe this is an issue. And even if we have to do it on a state-by-state basis, we're still going to continue to work. Meanwhile, President Trump himself is in Asia, and in a formal address to the South Korean parliament, he cited lack of electricity to criticize the North Korean regime's failure to provide for its people. Families live in homes without plumbing and fewer than half have electricity. I think I see where you're going here. Yeah, that's still more than families get in Puerto Rico. As of Thursday, seven weeks after Hurricane Maria hit the U.S. island territory, 60% of Puerto Ricans still lack electricity. But in better news, 85% of Puerto Ricans now have access to clean drinking water. But a boil water advisory remains in effect for the entire island. Puerto Rico's Bankruptcy Oversight Board has asked Congress this week for $2.5 
$21 billion in aid to fund basic government services. In Texas, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, officials have asked Congress this week for funding to buy out thousands of the area's most flood-prone properties, the largest home buyout in U.S. history. But it might be a tough sell with Republicans focused on their $1.5 trillion tax cut bill. Finally, some good news. NASA has announced this week that the Earth's ozone hole this year shrunk to the smallest annual size on record since 1988. That was thanks to the world's first global climate treaty, the Montreal Protocol, which phased out the use of man-made chemicals that were destroying the planet's protective ozone layer. That was led by conservatives President Ronald Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and shows that the world can join together to solve problems and success. Yes, global treaties work unless we just pretend that they don't. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Uh, as I said, uh, the uh, we've got some news breaking that uh, you had reported in the Green News there that uh, 60% of the island of Puerto Rico is still without power. Right. That has now plummeted. A massive outage has apparently wiped out uh, power to Puerto Rico's capital of San Juan, according to CNN, just before air today. The problem is apparently with a failure on a main north-south transmission line, mm, okay. according to an official with uh, with PREPA, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, because the generating stations are down south in the island. Right. The, well, everybody lives in the north. Right. The wires, Most. the transmission lines go over the mountains to yes. the north. So uh, the, uh, the spokesperson from PREPA says it was a mechanical issue on the line. It could have happened at any line, he said, is being patrolled and repaired by PREPA. But power went out apparently at 11.30 a.m. local time. Uh, Homes and businesses that had been on grid power had to restart generators if they had them. Power generation plummeted from basically uh, 40 percent of capacity, which is where they were, even though the uh, Hurricane Maria hit September 20. So yes. we are, what are we, seven, seven almost weeks. two months since then? Yeah. Uh, only 40% of the island had power. That plummeted to 18% on Thursday. So uh, other than that, a total uh, A plus, 10 out of 10 uh, response to this disaster in Puerto Rico. All right, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, the nation's John Nichols, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can drop me email anytime if you like. Uh, always good to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You can find, follow, and share our shows on uh, the Facebooks and the Twitters, where I am simply the Brad Blog. And if you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And my thanks in advance to uh, to those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate 
to help us uh, continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. That's it. Until we meet again, I am Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.